The Man Who Wasn't There Episode 3 You'll recall that in the previous episode we were looking at examples of police work that showed that they were committed to a case theory that Sue Neill Fraser had murdered her partner from as early as a couple of days after Bob Chappell's tragic disappearance. In this episode, we look at another serious example of this same commitment to a false theory. Our story today is about what happened to Peter and his evidence. Peter is a thoroughly decent Tasmanian who, on Australia Day, in the late afternoon, was out on the foreshore along the Derwent doing some exercise. He stopped at a wharf in order to have a drink of water. And while there, he looked out over the Derwent and at all the moored yachts. As he looked out at the yachts, there was one of those gusts of wind that turned some of the yachts around on their moorings so that he could see the sterns of the yachts and the dinghies or tenders attached to them. And whilst idly looking at what was happening, he noticed a yacht with a dinghy and an old guy on board. He thought nothing of it at the time, but the following day he heard on Hobart Radio a police request that anybody who knew anything about what might have happened to the Four Winds should call them. So he did that. This is the very day after the Australia Day incident. And he has a chat on the phone with the detective. And he described exactly what he saw. And the detective took down some handwritten notes. Now, those handwritten notes taken on the 27th of January 2009 make it very clear that whilst Peter did see a yacht, and he did see a dinghy, and he did see a man, he was looking at the wrong yacht and the wrong dinghy. He was not even looking in the right part of the river for the Four Winds yacht. Now that should have been the end of Peter's involvement in this case. He should have been thanked for being a public-minded citizen who took the time to answer the police call for information. Because at that point, Peter had nothing to offer the inquiry. But that's not what happened. A mere two to three days later, the police contacted Peter and asked him to come into the police station to make a formal statement. So he did, this public-minded Peter. Now this time, he saw another police detective, and we know that this police detective had with him, by his side, a copy of the notes that had been taken over the phone by his colleague. So it would follow that any accurate statement to be signed by Peter would make it very clear that he saw nothing of relevance. 
But by the time Peter left the station, he'd signed up to a statement that had him seeing the four winds, had him seeing its dinghy, and had him seeing Bob Chapel on the deck of that boat. Now, Peter is a thoroughly decent, honest human being. He came forward and told what he knew very, very soon after he saw it. And yet, what he had to say was manipulated by police to represent a state of affairs which was false. Now, evidence taken in a courtroom always has to be evaluated by looking at both the content of the message and the characteristics of the messenger. We call this message plus messenger. In the case of Peter, we had a thoroughly decent messenger and the police now had a signed statement from him which looked to all the world as though it was entirely credible. Now that is the best possible evidence, if it's true, and it's a nightmare when it's false. The nightmare in the Sunil Fraser case was that the false statement to which Peter had signed up was the statement that the police gave to the office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. That is the office that conducts prosecutions in our superior courts. And in turn, that office gave a copy of that signed statement to the defence team. Around Australia, police have a duty to disclose to the prosecution office all relevant witness statements and documents. So too, the defence must be provided with all of that material. There are several reasons why we have this policy. First, the provision of all necessary documentation to the defence entails that defence lawyers can and do often tell their clients that they should plead guilty at the earliest opportunity so as to get the minimum allowable sentence. Secondly, it means that in those cases that do go to trial, both parties, the prosecution and the defence, are working from the same primary material. And thirdly, it is a way of ensuring, from both the prosecution and the defence point of view, that the quality of the police investigation is what it should be, and what it should be is thorough, competent and impartial. Bear in mind that it's not the job of a defence team to prove that their client is innocent. Their job is to work with the evidence that is placed before them. And in so many cases, that work means their cross-examination of the prosecution witnesses. Now, at the Sue Neil Fraser murder trial in 2010, the defence team had no reason to doubt not only that Peter was credible, but that his evidence as to what he'd seen was accurate. 
There were other witnesses who gave evidence, either by way of written statement or by coming into court, as to having seen a grey and different dinghy around the four winds at times during that afternoon. However, their evidence was heavily discounted, not only at the trial in 2010, but even in 2021. All of that discounting flowing from the acceptance of Peter's first-hand observation. The defence was so impressed by Peter's evidence that they invited the jury to accept it. The Crown Prosecutor, too, was misled. He, too, thought that Peter's evidence as given in the statement and as confirmed in court was true. In 2021, you and I both know that the evidence that was given at the trial was wrong. And the police knew it too. Not only did they know it, but mid-trial in October 2010, one of the police officers sent an email to a staff member of the prosecutor's office disclosing the original handwritten notes. Now, it's never too late in a trial to correct errors, particularly serious errors. And what should have happened when that email was received in the prosecutor's office was that urgent steps were taken first to ensure that the Crown Prosecutor knew about the note, and secondly to ensure that the Defence Counsel knew about the note. If those things had happened, then the Crown Prosecutor and the Defence Counsel and the trial judge would have discussed what was to be done. What was to be done to make sure that the jury of 12 did not continue to be misled by a significant piece of evidence in the trial of Sue Neil Fraser. That did not happen. So far as we know, the Crown Prosecutor was certainly not told about that email. Very definitely, the defence was not told about it. And at that point, as the man who wasn't there I can say that my fate, my luck to be free for another dozen years, was pretty much guaranteed. Because now, not just the police, but others too, were wedded to ensuring that the truth did not out. <laughs>